listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to episode 263 of Belaboured, and welcome back to everyone who's missed us on our little hiatus. We appreciate you bearing with us as we figure out how to make the show sustainable. We are coming up on our 10th anniversary here shortly, and that is a long time to have been doing much of anything. I think this is the longest relationship that I have. We really appreciate all the support you've given us over the years, and we want to keep doing it. And in order to make that work with our other workloads, we're going to be shifting to a season structure. And we've got some exciting things planned for this season of the show. To start off, we're digging in deep today on an issue that's been in the news quite a lot lately, child labor. But first, before we get into the news, we'd like to give you a gentle reminder that all of our reporting only happens because of the generous support from our listeners and subscribers to Descent Magazine. If you'd like to support our independent journalism on underreported labor issues, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. And now the news. In recent months, higher education workers have been mobilizing on campuses across the country, with major strikes erupting at the University of California system, the New School, and University of Illinois Chicago. Student workers have also been organizing unions, as we have seen in recent months at Kenyon College, UChicago, Yale, and Boston University. And now at New York University, one of the first institutions in the country where graduate workers successfully organized years ago, contingent faculty are trying to form a union too. Contract faculty at NYU are a broad subset of the faculty who, unlike tenure-track professors, lack job security and often work on a year-to-year basis. They are now working with the United Auto Workers to organize for more equitable labor conditions and stable jobs. I spoke with Hannah Gurman, a contract faculty member in American Studies at the Gallatin School of NYU, about the experience of contract faculty and why they're unionizing now. Well, a lot of people know about adjuncts. They are part-time faculty who teach per class. They get paid per class. And then there are tenure-track faculty who have tenure. And contract faculty are full-time faculty who work on the basis of contracts that need to be periodically renewed. So we are trying to organize a union because adjunct faculty already have a union. Graduate students already have a union. Tenure-track faculty have tenure. And it's only contract faculty who do not have job security on the basis of either of those structures. Did the campaign emerge from any particular issues with some of the working conditions? Or was it just contract faculty realizing that they were the only major sector of the faculty that had no job security? Well, the movement to organize a union for contract faculty goes back a few years. There has long been a sense that we lack job security and could benefit from a union, but things really picked up in the last year. And you could say that there were a number of factors that led to the ramping up of the union efforts, including the pandemic and the kinds of issues that a lot of workers have been thinking about job security, salary in the wake of inflation, affordability in New York City. And then there are particular contexts of academic labor, as probably many people who are listening are aware, there's very rigorous labor movement happening right now in higher education from adjunct faculty all the way through tenured faculty in public universities. A heightened awareness of the fact that academics are workers and that we need better job security. We need regular raises that at least keep up with inflation. We need academic freedom. 
really, really important for academics, especially if their teaching and research are in areas that are politically controversial. So all of these things have really come to a crescendo. What is the difference between the type of job security that adjuncts have and uh, what contract faculty are seeking? My understanding was that adjunct faculty are just sort of by definition, chronic temporary workers. Right. So to be clear, everyone should have tenure. (laughs) Um, In a perfect world, there's no reason to have these different categories. It's really a matter of politics and capitalism that the administration has figured out a way to create these categories so that they have a cheaper and more flexible labor force. And you're right that adjuncts live in a state of precarity. They get paid per course and it's not really a living wage. That said, their union at NYU has really made a lot of progress, especially in the last year where they've gotten some significant raises. There's also a precedent for the NYU adjuncts that once you teach, I believe it's for three semesters, you do have a modicum of job security. You cannot be dismissed without cause. And so they do have a pretty strong system for making sure that there is some continuity once you taught a few semesters as a part-time faculty at NYU. Contract faculty are looking for a similar kind of job security, although we work on the basis of contracts. We want an institution that would back us, that we would have real grievance procedures so that you cannot just be arbitrarily dismissed when your contract is up. In practice, there are many schools around Gallatin that have a kind of culture or tradition of renewing contracts. I work at one of them. The vast majority of contract faculty have their contracts renewed, but in principle, it's up to the individual goodwill and generosity of your dean and provost. And that just doesn't make for a system that provides a context of academic freedom or the ability to take any kind of risks in your research and teaching if you think that might go against what the particular dean or provost wants. There's a sort of fundamental precarity, even though there might be a culture or tradition of renewing contracts. And what is the status of the campaign now? And what would the next steps be? About a month ago, we delivered a petition to the president of NYU, Andy Hamilton. It had the signatures of over half of the contract faculty at NYU showing their support for a union. And we asked for the administration to get back to us within a week. Uh, Weeks went by and we heard nothing. In the last couple of weeks, we have started some conversations with representatives of the administration. And so far, they have not committed to a neutral, fair, and expeditious process that would include everyone in the contract faculty at NYU. But we are hopeful that we can get there. You mentioned the other higher education labor struggles that are going on right now. And most recently, I think people saw the the strikes at the University of California campuses. Do you see this campaign sort of folding into that broader movement? And I know that you're affiliated with UAW as well. Absolutely. I think that it's important not just to consider each of these individual campaigns in their own right, but to see them as linked to a broader movement of academic workers 
coming together and seeing that we are workers and that we are stronger together. So I think anytime one of these campaigns ramps up, it's connected to the other campaign. We're all kind of watching each other and seeing the connections across the broader fields of higher education. So absolutely, it's not only the UC system, Things are really heating up in Rutgers right now. Also right here in New York City, the battle over budgets for CUNY, all of these things are connected and we've really seen an outpouring of support for our own campaign and we feel strongly about supporting these other campaigns, both locally and nationally. I know that the labor struggles that are going on at both UC and and Rutgers, there's sort of a strong critique of how the administration sort of treats the institution in general and the ways academic labor and the more academic aspects of university life has sort of gotten relegated to the sidelines and there's general pursuit of profit or in the case of public universities, just a general focus on privatization and disinvestment, you know, higher education as both a workforce as well as a public good. So, um, I mean, having grown up in New York City, I know NYU has a very sort of unique place in the city's economy and increasingly uh, globally as well. So uh, do you have any reflections on the NYU administration? generally and and whether your struggle reflects something about their priorities. This is a really big issue, the fact that over the past several decades in higher education, the biggest growth area is in administration and this kind of administerial, managerial oversight of the professors and the students, of course, and the real substantial work of education. It often feels like that is now marginal (laughs) relative to other ventures such as real estate development. And it's also telling that when you look at the board of trustees for a place like NYU and other private universities across the country, that they are heads of corporations rather than educators. It's important for the professors and the students to show that college is about learning and inquiry. It's not about business and management. It's about material job security, our fight, but it's also about the integrity of what it means to go to college and protecting that integrity and reminding administrators that this is not a business. That was Hannah Gurman, a contract faculty member at NYU and part of UAW's contract faculty organizing campaign. The city of Chicago defied all odds this week with a huge victory for the city's progressives and especially for its teachers' union. One of their own, Brandon Johnson, was just elected mayor in a tight runoff election. The election of Johnson, a teacher-turned-union organizer, is another milestone for the progressive coalition that crystallized in the wake of the 2012 teachers' strike in Chicago, in which community groups, unions, and post-Occupy leftists coalesced in a grassroots anti-austerity economic justice agenda. The Chicago mayoral race was seen as a test of two intensifying political narratives that have swirled around many key elections in recent years. On the one hand, there was growing backlash from reactionaries coming in the form of culture wars, rollbacks to the aid measures instituted at the height of the pandemic, and aggressive anti-crime rhetoric in response to public safety concerns. On the other hand, there was Johnson representing the aspirations of the labor movement, Chicago's working class, and an emerging socialist movement. 
Johnson and his opponent represented opposite sides of city politics, with Johnson, who cut his teeth with the Chicago Teachers Union, going up quite directly against the establishment embodied by Paul Vallis, former head of Chicago Public Schools. The class division between the two was underscored by their differing approaches to public safety. While Johnson dialed back his rhetoric around defunding the police, he campaigned around the treatment-not-trauma approach that focuses on pursuing public safety through mental health and community support rather than adding more cops and guns to the streets. Johnson also ran on a platform centered on taxing the billionaires and corporations of Chicago in order to support public investment in housing, education, transportation infrastructure, mental health care, and combating health disparities. His campaign also highlighted the need to uplift marginalized populations, including the immigrant, disability, and LGBTQ communities, and to address systemic issues of environmental injustice. The unapologetically left agenda was able to capture the majority in the city in large part due to the momentum that was generated initially back in 2010 when the CTU leadership changed hands and set off a progressive turn for the union. Over the next decade, it embraced not just militant tactics, such as organizing strikes and protesting, but tackling issues of economic and racial inequality head-on and turning teachers into grassroots advocates for the communities that they served. As Micah Utrecht writes in The Nation, quote, the union is the boldest local union in America and has assembled a broad coalition of community groups, progressive unions, and leftist elected officials around a shared agenda of fighting the austerity, poverty, racism, and gentrification that have reshaped Chicago politics in the past decade and a half. Unquote. And by investing resources and people power in key pro-labor electoral candidates, Utrecht adds, quote, the CTU has repeatedly undertaken difficult campaigns and won. Johnson's win is only its latest, unquote. By the way, in the show page, we'll link to our coverage of the Chicago teacher strike about a decade ago with Karen Lewis. Johnson's ability to implement his agenda in such a polarized city is likely to be dogged by partisan divisions and bureaucracy, but his victory indicates that the historical arc that stretches from the 2010 CTU election to the 2023 mayoral election has solidified an unabashedly pro-worker leftist political movement in the Windy City. And hopefully, this is just the start. The French are at it again. That tends to be the reaction, along with some jokes about how the French could teach American or British unions how to strike, to the massive strikes and protests that have been ongoing in France in response to President Emmanuel Macron's attempt to raise the retirement age. There is a lot to be said about that, but first I want to remind Americans that we also had some massive protests, police cars on fire, and cities shut down in this country recently in 2020 during the George Floyd rebellions. We do, in other words, know how to raise hell here too. But anyway, the French. This is also not the first massive uprising in France in recent years. There was, of course, the Gilets Jaunes and the 2016 movement rebelling against the attempt to lengthen France's 35-hour work week. So this uprising, which is, again, on paper about the move to raise the pension eligibility age from 62 to 64, is actually about so much more than that. It is about Macron's undemocratic use of presidential decree over the will of the people, a now unpopular president who's lost his majority support. As friend of the show Cole Stangler has noted, it's also about the violence of the police crackdowns and the arrests, which in turn fuel people's anger and increase the volume of the protests. It is about, in other words, the ongoing stripping away of people's rights and the lack of respect for people's stated opposition, or, you know, democracy. The social state and the social safety net is disappearing. Francois, a social worker who was due to retire in three months at age 63, told The Guardian during the protests. The Guardian further noted, quote, What began as two months of regular, peaceful, trade union organized strike days has shifted to more impromptu protest gatherings over the past 10 days. 
There have been pockets of unrest in many cities and towns after dark, with fires lit on streets and property vandalized. The longer the protests seem to go on, the more people are winding up supporting them. A recent poll found that nearly 70% of the public is opposed to the pension bill, and 70% do support the protests. So those numbers are increasing week after week. And particularly, young people have now been mobilized to join protests that they originally might not have seen as being about them, because they are very far from the retirement age or the question of pensions. Quote, a lot of people are not earning enough money to enjoy life, and they go to work every day for more than 40 years, Julia Perez, a 28-year-old who has joined the protests, told the Washington Post. Quote, so I think that retirement doesn't mean the same thing to everyone, especially between the rich and the poor. She said students marched alongside older protesters closer to retirement age out of concern for their own future. Inflation is very bad, salaries are not rising, so it's like nothing is really giving us the motivation to work very long. End quote. The French, in other words, are mad for the same reasons that people all over the place are mad. Because they're broke, they're overworked, the government doesn't seem to give a shit, and neither the center nor the far right have much of an answer, while the left hasn't been able to get over a certain level of power. There is, of course, a strike wave continuing across Britain, more about that in a very soon upcoming episode, strikes here in the US, and plenty of reasons for all of us to be pissed off enough to light something on fire. Teachers, as you heard about on our last episode of Belabored, have been through hell over the past few years. So have many of us, but I think teachers have been through a special level of hell. And that's even true in the districts where the unions are strong. It's been harder to do the kind of deep relational organizing that teachers' unions really rely on through the pandemic, though the return to in-person teaching has made that somewhat easier. And teachers aren't the only workers who have kept schools going. Service workers, support staff, bus drivers, among others, also put their health and safety at risk throughout the pandemic and are now being told there's no money and no care for them. But the Los Angeles Unified School District workers put the district and the country on notice that school workers aren't just going to sit back and take the abuse anymore. While school workers tend to bargain around a variety of issues beyond simple dollars and cents, the reality is that they've been underpaid for quite a long time too. And so when SEIU Local 99, which represents non-teaching staff in the LA district, went on strike on March 21st, United Teachers Los Angeles joined them in a solidarity strike. The unions were both in bargaining with the district, but the strike was actually an unfair labor practices strike. Local 99 had filed a ULP with the Public Employment Relations Board and called the three-day action, which in its success, prompted, in turn, the district to up its offer to Local 99, giving the support workers the entire raise they'd been asking for. The tentative agreement that they got included a raise of 30%, retroactive pay, a one-time bonus of $1,000, and extended healthcare benefits to more workers. It will increase the average salary of Local 99 members from $25,000 a year to $33,000 a year. UTLA remains in bargaining, though, and this strike was a shot across the bow for what could be a repeat of their dramatic 2019 strike, which I covered at the time for The Nation and for Belabored. In that campaign, they worked alongside a variety of community organizations and student organizations like Students Deserve for demands that went well beyond wages and benefits, and they are doing the same this time around. In these Times reports, quote, the two groups are now coming together again to build on their older demands. Inoye says UTLA officers have canvassed every school to gain input on, from students and staff on issues they care about. According to Inoye, the union also held community forums inviting parents and local organizations to answer the simple question, what do you want to see in this contract? 
The resulting platform, which is called Beyond Recovery, was not just something UTLA came up with, says Eloisa Galindo, member of the group's Eastside Padres Contra la Privatización and the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, or ACE, and also a longtime LAUSD parent. The Beyond Recovery platform is something that was built from community voices. Folks came together to voice their needs, Galindo adds, end quote. UTLA has noted that the district has $4.9 billion, with a B, dollars in reserves and is calling for it to spend that money, and not just on executive salaries. The unions have noted, too, that the school superintendent, Alberto Cavaljo, makes $440,000 a year. That is nearly 10 times that of a starting LAUSD teacher and more than the president of the United States. In a statement, UTLA President Cecily Meyer Cruz said, quote, We won't let anyone tell us that the historic level of resources can't be used to make our lives better, our students' lives better, and our communities stronger. In a school district where 86% of students live in poverty and staff salaries aren't nearly enough to pay rent or sometimes even put food on the table, we are proud to stand alongside the members of SEIU Local 99 as we demand an end to the hoarding of resources and call on LAUSD to make the investments today necessary to secure our success tomorrow." End quote. We shall see, in other words, what comes next for LA schools. But the three-day strike and its success should help embolden school workers who have been feeling pretty beaten down for the last three years. When you hear the words child labor, your mind may go to images from the turn of the century of Jacob Reese's or Lewis Hines' photographs of the grim lives of tiny laborers toiling in mines or urban sweatshops. Or you may think about children in Africa or South Asia digging for precious metals or harvesting crops on plantations. Those types of child labor are the target of many international human rights campaigns, as well as condemnation from various governments in the global north. But recent news reports have revealed that child labor is alive and well here in the U.S. in 2023. It's fueled in large part by the influx of migrants at the southern border, mostly from Central America. Many migrant children living with relatives or those who arrived as so-called unaccompanied minors, that's the technical term for children who are here on their own, are forced to work to support family members back home. Many of them are working at major corporations that should know the longstanding labor regulations against the employment of children. But it appears that bosses are turning a blind eye to the tragically obvious presence of underage workers in their factories, construction sites, and farms. Contemporary child labor is a manifestation of a dysfunctional, cruel immigration regime that systematically fails to protect young people and families, and it's a byproduct of brutal corporate power driving economic turmoil and regulatory erosion in the most marginalized sectors of the working class. The Biden administration has promised reforms in response to the recent New York Times expose on migrant child labor. However, given the structural underpinnings of this humanitarian crisis, it's perhaps no surprise that many politicians are actively and publicly working to undermine existing child labor restrictions. Conservatives are pushing state-level legislation that would roll back current standards on employing kids under 18, as weak as those current standards are, under the pretext that giving businesses more flexibility to employ child workers for longer hours and with less oversight is actually somehow beneficial for society. This debate is nothing new, of course. The exploitation of youth is deeply embedded in the story of American labor and capitalism, both in terms of the work that children have done since the earliest days of colonization and slavery, and the resistance to economic oppression that child workers have put up throughout that history. I spoke with Jack Hodgson, a visiting professor of history at the University of Roehampton in the UK, 
about child labor throughout U.S. history and the politics around child workers in the context of labor and civil rights struggles that still continue to this day. Child labor is in the news again. I'm interested in knowing whether you were surprised to see some of the headlines that we've seen recently with the New York Times investigation about um, migrant children who have come to the U.S. by themselves and find themselves working in all sorts of industries across the country. Yes, well, I have to say it was an example where the kind of news headlines were very unsurprising to somebody who kind of looks at this uh, field historically. I think child labor has been in the news a lot in terms of loosening restrictions, but then it's also been in the news because people are violating the laws that people are currently trying to loosen in some states. But it's really the US has never really gotten on top of where it wants to be in terms of child labor, in terms of you know, reforms were always piecemeal and contested, and there's never really been a settled position on child labor. So it's always been this contested ground and been quite controversial in and out of the news. I think some listeners might be surprised to hear that perhaps, you know, thinking that you know, if there is one sort of taboo in labor regulations, you would think that child labor would be one place where they would draw the line. But you're saying that the there's obviously an ongoing debate about it now with some politicians trying to roll back the laws, but you're saying that your research, there's always been pushback to efforts to regulate child labor. Absolutely. I think it's very hard for somebody to take what I would say as a puritanical position on child labor. Most people, a lot of people, if you ask them, uh, would say that they're against child labor. But then if you give them certain examples, they might not be as against it as they originally think. Talking about child labor, things that are in the news are, you know, kids working in fast food restaurants, kids working in factories, kids working in agriculture and things like that. But, you know, if you were to have a complete and absolute ban on child labor, would people, for example, be for saying, you know, if you go and see a show on Broadway, you can't see a production of Matilda, of Annie, of Newsies, of Mary Poppins, you know, all those child performers, that's child labor. Those kids live in their Broadway dream. That's child labor. Child actors in movies and TV, that's child labor. Kids delivering newspapers, having their newspaper round. Many people would see that as a bit of a rite of passage rather than abuse of child labor. Or kids even taking that first summer job as a summer camp counselor whilst they're technically a minor. Because many people would see those things as being perfectly good things for young people to do, it'd be really hard to have an absolute ban on child labor. So that means it's always this negotiation of where is the line. Uh, historically, people, you know, children working down mines, that's a bad idea. People move to legislate against that, although there is money interests in keeping the status quo. So even these kind of reforms are often contested over a long period of time. But because there are these examples of child labor that many people would be in favor of. It makes it hard to have an absolute ban, which means we end up in this position of negotiation. I think some people might also have been surprised when they read the New York Times investigation just seeing the breadth sectors and industries that uh, children are employed in. Um, you know, people may be somewhat familiar, for instance, with children working on farms, right? But, you know, not necessarily working restaurant jobs or working in factories. Can you give us some insight as to how integral child workers have been to the economy historically and also today? Right back in the 1880s, we estimate that about 40% of the workforce were children. So they were a, a huge part of the working economy then. And then that has been rolled back with restrictions. And one of the more successful ways of regulating child labor was instead of having bans, 
it was by having mandatory school laws. So basically mandating that children were somebody at somewhere else. The sector uh, at the moment that's probably the biggest issue is uh, agriculture. Uh, that's because since the 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act, agriculture has been exempt from many restrictions. So according to the uh, US Federation of Teachers, there's up to half a million children working in agriculture uh, in the US, uh, some of them as young as eight, and some of them working as up to 72 hours a week. So agriculture would be the kind of main industry. And obviously that could be a very dangerous occupation, exposure to chemicals, pesticides, dangerous machinery, very hot weather conditions, things like that. But one that's kind of really been became more prominent in the kind of 2020, 2021, uh, with the kind of end of some places, COVID restrictions, uh, it was fast food joints where, you know, it was, I think it went viral, it was kind of an advert of a Burger King or a McDonald's, uh, you know, parents, does your teenager want a job? We're hiring 14 year olds. The idea that many of these minimum wage jobs don't pay a very good living. So if people are, rather than there being a kind of labor crisis, there's enough workers, but workers are not paying taking full-time jobs that won't pay. So many of these industries have been looking towards hiring children in part-time roles in order to pay less wages than what an adult worker would demand. It's often in these debates where you see people sort of touting, you know, the value of, of work experience for teenagers and things like that. You know, I don't think all these corporations are really um, racing to give children an enriching educational experience in their fast food jobs. Uh, no, absolutely not. There has been one or two that have tried to kind of present themselves as doing that by saying, you know, we'll pay you your child like an extra hour if they do homework in that time, things like that, which really is quite a bizarre thing to be that's going on. But, yeah. you know, this is something that I think it's been in the headlines recently, but it, it's been going on for a number of years. And it's interesting that it, it does tend to be GOP states. Whereas the kind of first party to uh, really have an anti-child labour platform was the Prohibition Party. So child labour opposition used to be a kind of morally conservative standpoint. And now it's the kind of more conservative states that are trying to bring back child labour or loosen restrictions. But like an example I would point to is that what's been in the headlines recently is something that has actually been going on for quite a number of years. You know, in Wisconsin... Since 2011, there's been a series of laws introduced uh, in the state legislature that have loosened child labor restrictions. So uh, I know Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas has been making headlines for her recent rollback of some restrictions. But this has not come out of the blue. It's a pattern of that's been going on for a number of years recently. Uh, so like, as I said, Wisconsin in 2011, they um, increased the hours per day that older teenagers could work, removed the requirement to have permits and more recently expanded so that minors can work up to 9.30 p.m. the day before school. So what's recently hit the headlines is actually finally garners attention as something that's actually been going on uh, for a while across the country. So it seems like there's a dichotomy um, when we're talking about child labor in the sense that um, often the examples that people hold up as um, you know so-called positive examples of child labor, child actors, and elite types of child labor, or those seem to stand in stark contrast with the um, reality of child labor that we're seeing in the headlines today, because I mean, these are not, these are certainly not child actors. They're people who are sort of at the dregs of the workforce, and they're being hyper exploited by both uh, underground operations, as well as totally above board 
corporations. So, and you know, these are these are migrant children. Most probably came with little to no English, you know, without their parents. It's a certain type of kid who's really in that kind of child labor. So can you talk about which children are most most vulnerable to that form of exploitation in this economy? And has it changed over time? What do the demographics of child labor tell us about how the workforce is, is changing? We absolutely, we have a, a lot going on. As you said, we have two kind of things. One is an increase in kind of legal child labor. And then we also have an increase in violations of the law. So I had a quick look at the US Department of Labor's stats for the past few years. In 2015, they recorded 542 violations from companies, uh, but that was up to 835 in 2022. So more and more companies are just choosing to violate the laws that we have, never mind if people are trying to loosen those laws. And 216 of those cases last year were children working in uh, hazardous occupations. Uh, so things like abattoirs, factories, where they're using dangerous machinery or exposed to uh, potentially dangerous substances. This, despite the Labor Department issuing $4.3 million worth of fines, uh, it seems like more and more companies are very much willing to continue to break the laws that are in place. There was a McDonald's franchise last year in Pennsylvania that was, you know, fined 57k for violations involving 101 different individual child workers. The breaking of the rules is becoming a problem as well as the debate around what the rules should be. Historically, child labor in the US, that history really, you can link it all the way back to the US's history of slavery. Some children were put to work from a very young age and it was historically non-white children. Post-slavery, there is still this, there's always been immigrant groups of people brought into the country, often resented that even though they served an economic need and children were part of that. And historically, due to the 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act, it's the worst, uh, the highest amount has been in agriculture, which has tended to be across the US South. And it has in recent years been disproportionately vulnerable migrant children from Central and South America, uh, some of whom who don't speak much English or who are unaccompanied. So it, it is not well off children with good support networks that are being exploited. It tends to be vulnerable migrant non-white children. And around the time the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed with all those agricultural exemptions, uh, it was disproportionately black workforce in the South that was working these agricultural jobs, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, that's one of the issues with like the New, New Deal and agricultural reform and welfare is a majority black agricultural workforce living in poverty in the South. And then in more recent times with immigration from Central and South America, people of Southern American uh, heritage, some of whom are immigrants, some of whom are kind of second generation these days, trapped in exploitative agricultural employment. Um, although there, there are some states that are slightly different uh, historically, like California with Asian American labor and agriculture as well. In terms of efforts to reform or regulate child labor, what has the role of organized labor been historically, whether in advocating for restrictions or bans on child labor, or sort of more broadly tackling child labor as kind of a social phenomenon. I was looking actually to see if any unions had spoken out in response to the recent revelations regarding child migrant labor. But then I thought, well, maybe unions today don't really see this issue as necessarily in their purview. 
So I, I was just wondering if you could uh, talk about the history of that, what the role of the labor movement has been and, and what it is today. I think one of the more kind of vocal organizations at the moment has been the U.S. Federation of Teachers, um, who as a profession see the welfare of children within their purview. And there are teachers that will notice that some children will be tired, uh, disengaged, not performing as well as they could be in school due to the child labor that they're undertaking. So I would say that teachers unions are probably one of some of the more vocal organizations of this at the moment. Um, I think one of the issues that has historically been with all kinds of child welfare issues in the US is children are very rarely being given the opportunity to advocate for themselves. It's often adults advocating on behalf of children. So during the progressive era, the kind of loose coalition of the so-called child savers movement and things like that. Of course, there's kind of an interesting point that some children who uh, historically have had jobs have been opposed to child labor restrictions you know for some of the kind of earlier um examples of quite a militant union stage and strikes would be like your newsboys unions and things like that whose membership would be very opposed to a ban on child labor so in terms of labor history i think that it is interesting that there has not been a kind of consistent movement against child labor uh, i think another issue is that the during the 1930s, some of the kind of organizations that are vocally against child labor are linked to the, the U.S. Communist Party. You know, so there was a radical youth organization called the Young Pioneers of America. They were vocally against child labor, but they were also heavily criticized as being atheist and communist. So for a while, staunch opposition to child labor became associated with communism, political radicalism, and then during the kind of eras of the Red Scares, that definitely worked to the detriment of people who were pushing for stronger child labor restrictions. And then you mm-hmm. also have the kind of power of big businesses who are willing to try and lobby politicians and challenge through the courts uh, any restrictions that are passed. Yeah, yeah. When you talk about the lack of consistency in the movement to abolish child labor, I think about this strange kind of ethical blind spot maybe in these debates around child labor where we seem to fixate on the age of majority as sort of this, you know, this line, right, Um, which you kind of bifurcate the workforce. And then below that, you know, it's child labor is seen as, you know, cruel or something that needs to be heavily regulated. Then above that, allow you know, all manner of (laughs) exploitation, um, you know, for people 18 and above. And I guess I'm wondering, as someone who's uh, researched um, the debates around this historically, do you feel like the debate is missing a point when we get too fixated on just the fact that minors are being employed and not really necessarily looking more holistically at the working conditions in general? And, And also the fact that, you know, when children are employed in these situations, it's often because the economy is structured in a way that makes it necessary for them to essentially become breadwinners for their families. I guess I'm just thinking it seems a little bit naive or short-sighted perhaps to just think that, you know, oh, you know, working this job below 18 is wrong, right? And then working it when you're 18 or older is okay. I guess I'm just wondering, you know, how do we have like a nuanced debate that brings in more elements about thinking about humane work rather than just the age? Yeah, um, I, I think you look at, you know, examples of um, child labor violations and so many involving hazardous occupations. But I would definitely argue that 
for where there's the exploitation of those young workers in those hazardous occupations, there is almost certainly exploitations of older workers in certain industries as well, just focusing on removing the children from that environment while it might be a good thing for their welfare is not going to solve the overall exploitation that's going on in that particular workplace. As well, there, even as someone whose research looks at child labor, like I said, there are definitely certain examples where you would say it is not necessarily a bad thing. I you know, know for, from some experience in the outdoor education industry, you know, there are some young people, for example, that will go to a summer camp and they'll take their first summer job at 15 or 16 as a summer camp counselor over the summer. Those are not exploitative jobs. So a complete ban on child labor probably wouldn't be a net good thing. But then, as you say, all of these kind of examples of child labor take place because of a broader economic structure that means that those jobs are necessary in some way. And that that is one of the issues that has historically always dogged issues to do with child labor thinking right back to kind of Lewis Hine taking photographs of child workers in the 1910s and beforehand that many of the individual child workers to if spoken to would not want to give up their job because the money that they are earning is needed by their family to survive so many of those children don't want to give up that job many of those families don't want them to give up that job because the money that they bring in uh, is necessary to that family uh, so what also needs to happen as well as uh, hopefully regulating these abusive practices is making it so that families are not dependent on children becoming breadwinners or support and family income uh, in their early teens when i've reported on child labor outside of the united states there have been various you know nonprofits trying to figure out ways to deal with child labor and, and make sure that children are not exploited in various supply chains and the issues they often run into are are structural and and bans have often been ineffective. Would you say the same thing for child labor restrictions here in the US? Like you um, know, the reason we have this erosion of these standards is because of these structural barriers in the economy that make it so difficult for children to break out of that. Uh, uh, definitely, you know, for some families as child labor ideal no child labor might be the difference between keeping a roof over their head or having food on the table, things like that. And we've definitely seen, as well as an erosion of, of regulations, also an increase in the number of violations of the regulations. Clearly what is currently going on is not having the desired effect, it's not working. And it's interesting that you bring up the kind of international comparison. A lot of people are very conscious of the supply chain of clothes that they buy. Has child labor been involved in the manufacture of these clothes outside of the US? But they might be far less informed about the amount of child labor going into the domestic grown US food produce that they buy, for example, if they're trying to be an ethical consumer. I would go as far as to say that the, even the current US federal administration has got takes a somewhat hypocritical stance on child labor. You know, the Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, the Labor Department, the State Department is very critical of other countries and has taken part in World Day Against Child Labor, yet seems to take very little action or notice about child labor domestically in the US. Obviously, it's complicated because many of these regulations are determined by states, not the federal government. But as a kind of international observer, it just comes across as 
very hypocritical for the US state and labor departments to be highly critical of other countries over their child labor records. There was a ban on uh, products made using indentured child labor. There was a ban on imports of those going back to 1930, right? Yeah. So it's it's not like it's a, you know, it's a new thing, right? I mean, when you bring up the international thing, you know, certainly not not the only instance in which the State Department has has um, taken a hypocritical stance. It seems to me, you know, from the sort of global debate around child labor, it's it seems like it's often used as kind of a political symbol and a political football of sort to kind of um, have one country perhaps take the moral high ground or you know denounce another country for their labor conditions. But it seems like it's it's a much more complicated picture and an indirect complicity of the U.S. and its employers <laughs> and, and consumers as well, right, makes it difficult to combat this on a, on a domestic or a global level. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is an issue that uh, countries and the media is willing to kind of weaponize to score political points. So, for example, um, in Chinese state television and media at the moment, especially given the headlines around the kind of loosened rules in Arkansas, there's been a kind of spate of Chinese state media coverage of abusive child labor practices in the US. And, you know, we all know that that is massively hypocritical um, in terms of, you know, child labor in China and general working conditions in China. So it is definitely an issue that is just used as a political football by governments and medias. And then it also kind of feeds into, uh, it's usually part of a, a wider kind of children's rights issue. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I would say that um, in the US, we have the, or there is the kind of child labor issue at the moment. But if we're thinking about this kind of broader theme of children legally being children, but being kind of put into so-called adult roles in society, at the same time, you have states in the US where there's no age limit on marriage. You have child marriage going on. Um, and then you have juvenile justice systems where children can be tried as adults. So to me, it's part of a wider pattern where young people can work, marry and be tried as adults. There's this kind of broader pattern of adultification of of young people. So you might not be able to fully tackle one issue without that kind of wider process being tackled. Yeah. I mean, historically, childhood has always been a concept that's been applied rather selectively, right? Uh, Going back to the era of slavery. I mean, uh, childhood didn't exist for black children, certainly. You know, the kind of idea of childhood as this holy innocent phase where you should be able to play and, you know, believe in fantasy and things like that. It's always been a kind of luxury that's been available to some more than others. Standards have definitely applied to some people more than others. There's always been this kind of idea of, in the same way that there's been an idea of deserving and undeserving poor in kind of uh, welfare policy, uh, there's always been like an idea of, you know, deserving and undeserving children of having what we would consider as kind of a modern Western ideal of childhood. And, you know, the kind of most erigous example uh, in US history would be the kind of treatment of children fighting on both sides in the Civil War, uh, child soldiers. And then many, many, many children were enslaved in the US. You know, I think that the history of child labor goes, you know, right back to children making nails and slave plantations, as they did at Thomas Jefferson's plantation. But at the same time, there would be relatively uh, luxurious childhoods for wealthier white children. In terms of Western idealized 
you know, racialized concept of childhood. I was just thinking about this campaign a few years ago, academics and, and others in the nonprofit world who wrote a, a joint public letter advocating for kind of a redefinition of child labor because their argument was basically that very rigid definition of child labor tried to essentially abolish child labor was inappropriate for countries uh, in which there were traditions of children being employed in family workshops and things like that, and, and where the picture of child labor and children's involvement in work and in the economy was more nuanced and more complex than perhaps this um, sort of moral crusader kind of concept of child labor where trying to go in and rescue the exploited children from a sweatshop or something like that. So I remember there's a fair bit of pushback to that letter, but it raised an interesting debate in which I guess, you know, both sides may have had some reasonable points to say in, in terms of do we really want to simply look at this in terms of kind of moral opprobrium for what we see as a social scourge? Or do we want to have a more realistic picture of how children are implicated in the economy at, at every level, and particularly in, in really poor countries where either traditional reasons or just structural and economic reasons, children have to work or their parents are, are willing to put them into work. So your scholarship has looked at children in activism and, and movements and sort of agitating for their own rights. And uh, curious as to how you view this debate from maybe a, a child's point of view. <laughs> One of the kind of issues uh, for the kind of in the progressive era in the US was many working class children um, did not necessarily agree with what uh, predominantly middle class so-called child servers wanted for them. Lots of the kind of newsboys and girls that were selling papers didn't want a ban on child labor. They wanted a fairer deal from the publishers. Um, and that's where they formed newsboys unions you know, the famous strike in New York in 1899, but there were many others. So this kind of idea of, you know, actually listening to what young people want, and sometimes they tell us what we don't want them to say or something different to what we think. And then, as you said, it's very easy to look at it just from a kind of perspective of somebody in the US or somebody from the UK. Our view of the world doesn't reflect the whole world. You know, there are countries where there's very little or no educational opportunity for people from in for many people in their early teens and upwards so what else are they going to do but go to work there are many families where you know young people's wages will be the difference uh, maker and meeting the basic essential needs and i think there's very different characters of child labor you could have two children the same age working um, one can be working, contributing towards a family business or, a, you know, a small family business in a developing country versus a child that's employed by a large corporate corporation. I would say one is one much more exploitative than the other, even though you could have two examples of children the exact same age working because they are two very different scenarios. So context is important. And I think that having this absolutist kind of approach is probably not going to get anywhere because there are always these exceptions to any rule. You know, they're kind of very privileged exceptions, like being a child actor on Broadway and things like that. But you're never going to have an absolute ban. So that kind of focus there is almost wasted. So uh, now that we've 
completely complicated this issue. Um, I, I want to go back to this issue of regulation because now, as you said, you know, there's both uh, simultaneously an, an erosion of regulation or an attempt to roll back various regulations happening at the state level led by conservatives. And you also have the regulations that we do have sort of becoming less and less effective, uh, apparently based on what's been happening simply because of all of these other social patterns that are happening that um, end up putting children in these in these vulnerable situations. You know, if you if it were up to you, how would you like to see child labor regulated in a rational and humane way, taking into consideration all of the all the sensitivities and and the complexities that we talked about? Um, well, that, there are, you know, there are several different options. People have been trying to regulate it for from a long time uh, i do think that that you know what i think there should be an ideal world and what will practically happen is probably two different things um but i do think there's potentially more of a role at the federal level to kind of set minimum standards and then states can do what they want i think at the moment with the makeup of the supreme court it'd be very difficult for a federal government to assert itself but i still think that they should try on issues like child labor and child marriage. You know, I would like to see conservatives have to go to the Supreme Court to argue against a federal ban on children under the age of 16 being married. I would like to see people, you know, there was an attempt to regulate child labor through amending the constitution that a number of states did agree with in the 1930s. Um, Yet, obviously, the idea of any kind of constitutional amendment seems like ridiculously far away at the moment. But, you know, people have tried it before. But what would the amendment say, though? Because, you know, taking into account that there, you said there will never be a complete ban, though, right? So would it be an amendment with lots of, um, you know, clauses? And I, I think it would have to be. I, th- I think like one approach I think that, you know, is, you know, depends on your outlook. Some people think that, you know, it's worthwhile trying to achieve piecemeal step by step change. Uh, other people are more kind of absolutist all and often in their approach. Uh, I think like the biggest issue at the moment is the number of children that are working in hazardous occupations. 2022 um, of the 835 violations that the Department of Labor caught, I would be a cynic and say there would be many others that pe- where people got away with it. Um, you know, 216 of those were in hazardous occupations, I think harsher penalties for violations concerning hazardous occupations and then i think maybe some redefinition of what a hazardous occupation is thinking about the problem in agriculture you know exposure to pesticides and chemicals but we also need to be realistic with the way we regulate other things so the environmental protection agency will regulate the types of chemicals and pesticides that can be used in agriculture but at the moment uh, how they do that doesn't take into account the fact that you will have fairly young children working in the fields exposed to those substances. What is a safe level of exposure for a fully grown adult body isn't the same for a 12-year-old child. So for as long as we have this issue of children working in agriculture, the kind of regulations that the EPA sets for chemical pesticides, things like that, needs to take into account their presence. So a kind of two-pronged approach you know, is there a way to limit through regulation, focusing first on hazardous hazardous occupations, uh, but then also there are other ways we can regulate, like you said. So the EPA should take into account that children work in fields when it's regulating what substances can and can't be used safely. Maybe we should like ban pesticides so no one is exposed <laughs> <Yeah>. to them. <laughs> well, um, I think that would uh, 
well, that makes uh, how, all how ambitious do we want to be? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, well, we, we, we dream big here. <laughs> the labored. But and I guess my, my last question was just, you know, because you have studied children's role in social movements, we can return back to see this issue from a child's perspective as much as possible. How do you think children who are you know, vulnerable to being exploited or are already in situations in which they're exploited, how can they be listened to, engaged, empowered even? Because it, it always seems like no matter which side you're on in this debate, it's sort of like it's always just adults talking to each other. Where do you see the role of the children themselves in this story? I think that's one of the most difficult kind of uh, aspects of this because the kind of most vulnerable are hardest to reach. Maybe a language barrier, maybe an unaccompanied minor. I think lots of concerns regarding welfare are often raised by teachers. But if these children are missing education because of child labor, that's not going to happen. I think that the kind of power structures, the power dynamics make it really hard for children to speak up. You know, in many cases, they might be forced to do something they don't want to do and not know how to get out of it, not know who to speak to. Or there might be economic pressures on the family means that, that they will continue doing something that they don't actually want to do because of that economic pressure. So I think that it's it's a real challenge of how we safeguard the most vulnerable children at the moment because it is really difficult for them to be able to express themselves uh, to the right person. You know, I'd know that Human Rights Watch is doing a lot of work and investigations in US agriculture. I think that many Americans, you know, especially in less and more urban places would probably be shocked by the extent that Human Rights Watch pays attention to rural America. You know, we think of Human Rights Watch as going into other countries and having major concerns so that, you know, there are kind of international uh, human rights organizations trying to pay attention and sending in researchers to talk to young workers and things like that. But it does seem to be a real issue in safeguarding in general that the kind of most vulnerable people are the most hard to reach and the most hard to listen to. You know, I don't necessarily have all the answers, but I think that the number of charities and international human rights organizations that are currently paying attention to this issue should be setting alarm bells off for politicians and business leaders and members of the public in the USA. Yeah, I was just thinking about the the other debates around children and children's rights that are happening right now in US yeah. politics. And, you know, it's maybe not coincidental that while we're trying to roll back child labor laws, we also have, you know, politicians um, that are talking about restricting what children can learn in school about history or about race or restricting the rights of transgender teens and, and all these other ways in which their efforts to sort of police and restrict children's behavior and children's education done under the guise of trying to protect them right so there's yes I, I think you know, double-edged sword there it, it, it often seems to be the party that likes to claim to be the party of small government that's imposing some of these rules as well yeah the, i think this um it's a wider kind of culture that it's the adult's job to determine what children should and shouldn't be doing you know uh, it's like you said the actual number of transgender school-aged athletes in any state is going to be very very small yet huge amounts of legislative effort are being put into banning a handful of kids from taking part in school sports. 
it's truly mind-boggling to me. And there's extensive kind of efforts to regulate the content of what teachers can and can't teach about US history and things like that, or what content is and isn't okay in children's books. So it's, we have this really strange contradiction that there is an intense focus on more regulation, restricting content, restricting activity, yet the opposite for child labor. You know, it just seems a really odd contradiction. You know, usually you'd have a trend towards or against regulation, whereas here we have a trend towards regulating leisure activities, regulating learning materials, but trying to loosen regulations around children at work. It's a really odd contradiction. Um, yes. That seems just rooted in the power of the adult legislator. Yeah, I was going to say it, it, it is paradoxical, and yet somehow it makes sense when you look at the agenda yeah. of these politicians. So, I mean, when, when uh, you were talking about how children have, in the early part of the 20th century, were involved in organizing like the Newsies and, and um, how they sort of found ways, even in their sort of hyper-exploited position, to make their voices heard. Maybe you can end with any examples from history that you'd like to highlight in which children did find ways to empower themselves or participate in democracy in, in a way that directly confronted the types of oppression they were facing, but also didn't relegate them to this position of being sort of coddled innocence. <laughs> yeah, well, as, as soon as I even mentioned Newsies when we were talking about the kind of child actor exemption to child labor, but obviously the Newsies is the disnification of history. It's not particularly accurate, but it does kind of recall the history of New York's 1899 Newsboys strike. And there's a historian called David Nassau that he, he terms that the kind of dirty faced Davids against Goliaths because it was a kind of mass organization of thousands of predominantly young news sellers against Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst, you know, two absolute titans in publishing immensely wealthy and powerful. Yet by refusing to sell the papers, they completely managed to jeopardize their business and managed to win significant concessions. It's so a by forming a, a union. I think that tale is particularly poignant. Uh, there are other examples of kind of children organizing and going on strikes. There was a school strike in Pittsburgh in 1913 where all the children refused to go to school because a superintendent who'd been accused of abusing a girl was allowed back to work. And it was, they reckon that up to three quarters of children in Pittsburgh just stopped going to school. And they did end up the school superintendent was dismissed. So they did get what they wanted. So, you know, children have been capable of organizing and getting what they wanted. And, you know, I think in more recent times, we've seen that with young people in, in the US, particularly regarding the issue of gun violence, the March for Our Lives movement. I remember certain senators having quite disparaging things to say about young people who'd even survived mass shootings at their schools, marching on Washington for how, you know, they should be in the classroom. And, you know, more recently around the world, but including in the US, kind of the Fridays for the future, children going on strike regarding the environment. So I think children and young people and teenagers have shown the immense potential to be organizers and change makers. But at the moment in the US, this isn't even their most prescient issue. Many of them have been focusing a lot of their efforts organizing amongst themselves uh, on the issue of gun violence and the you know envir potential environmental catastrophe. So it's almost just too many issues for them to organize around. Yeah. Maybe we need, you know, less child labor, more children going on strike, though. Yes, yeah. potentially. 
yeah, and and I was also thinking about it's probably reflective of the fact that we live in a gerontocracy that children are often when they are in politics, they're sort of these abstractions that are just kind of like used as symbols of whatever culture war issue you feel like exploiting at the moment, right? Absolutely. You know, I think there's this ideal that a well-behaved child is an apolitical one. The idea that politics is like this kind of dirty adult thing that they shouldn't be aware of or be involved in. The kind of seen but not heard ideology that's kind of rooted in age-based power as well. Um, But whereas, you know, if we're thinking right back to 1899, young people going on strike, children have actually always been pretty political in their own way. But there is this ideal that to be a well-behaved kid, you need to be apolitical. Yeah, and I guess, you know, our, our laws have never really gotten it right, I guess, um, when, the, when trying to protect children, right? Um, there's always that fine line between protecting and silencing, I suppose. Yeah, it's very difficult because every, you know, it's always difficult because when you're legislating, it's a one size fits all. And that's always difficult for anything. And is there anything else you want to add either about your, your research or maybe in terms of some of the regulatory discussion around child labor? You know, one thing that I would just throw into the discussion that's not really super related, but it's to do with the kind of migrant children welfare. And it's a lot of migrant children that are being exploited, child labor kind of situations. From a, This is from a, somebody who's living in the UK's perspective, that the kind of whole issue of kids in cages, uh, the conditions that young people are kept in in detention centers and the southern border was quite a big issue um, building up to the, the most recent presidential election. Uh, it seemed to be something that many people were willing to discuss about relating to President Trump. And I just find it quite disheartening that once the Democratic candidate won, many of those conditions on the southern border have not changed for the young people subjected to them, yet there seems to be suddenly a lot less willingness to pay attention to them. So it just seems to be like another example of you know these young people being used for an adult group's partisan political goals rather than kind of a genuine attention to their welfare. So that's... It's probably quite a pessimistic point to make, but I just think that it's um, slightly disheartening because I don't think there's been an improvement there, but people seem to have stopped paying as much attention. That was Jack Hodgson, visiting professor at the University of Roehampton and researcher on child labor in the U.S. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. If you're a fan of Belabored, I bet you will also love The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. The Dig is a weekly show featuring in-depth interviews on every subject imaginable, from the politics of inflation and labor history to the Asian empires founded by Genghis Khan and how homosexuality fits into the long history of the capitalist world system. Hosted by my friend Dan Denver, past guests on The Dig include Naomi Klein, Aziz Rana, Patrick Blanchfield, Kiangi Yamada-Taylor, Ruth Wilson-Gilmore, Jane McAlevey, Robin D.G. Kelly, and of course, me. The Dig also just launched The Dig Presents, a new monthly series of documentary stories. The first episode is out now. Omar Etman tells the story of the destruction of a garden in Cairo in the context of LCC's reactionary government. You can subscribe to The Dig wherever you get your podcasts. This season of Belabored is brought to you in part by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which supports independent journalism by and for people who are struggling at the margins of the economy.
So child labor, huh? We picked a, a heavy one to come back on. But I think there are so many things worth talking about in this subject. I've been really stuck on this sort of joint movement towards loosening child labor restrictions at the same time as we're tightening other restrictions on children, right? As our guest was saying, on what they can read, but also on their bodily autonomy when we're talking about attacks on trans kids getting access to gender-affirming care. It can sound like a contradiction except for two things. One, right, all of these are restrictions in some way on kids' freedom. There are ways that we're putting children under the control of adults. Kids will be at work, they'll be under the control of adults, or they will be more restricted in what they're able to access in schools or in healthcare under the control of adults who are not their parents, which, you know, I don't think for a second we should romanticize the role of parents because, you know, one of the big panics around trans kids is that kids might be socially transitioning without their parents knowing. And if your kid is not telling you that they're trans, there's probably some reasons you've given them to think that. And I really loved our guest's ending with, I mean, longtime listeners to Belabored know how I feel about Newsies. The Newsies rule, if we strike, then we're a union. But the fact that young people, as I'm recording this, literally young people in Nashville are holding a walkout over the latest school shooting. We've seen kids becoming active and pressing older people to make better decisions, not just about their working conditions, but about their living conditions in so many ways. And something again that our guest pointed out that I wanted to highlight is that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is not sending her kids to work in a slaughterhouse. If her kids get a job, it will be the kind of nice after school job that, you know, nice middle class kids get to have a little bit of spending money. They'll be scooping ice cream. They won't even be working at McDonald's. Whereas the kids who are working in a slaughterhouse are often, again, being super exploited because they are maybe unaccompanied migrant kids who don't have anybody to be looking out for them. And then, of course, something that I heard so many times from teachers during COVID lockdowns of various things, where a lot of parents had lost their jobs because the kinds of jobs that the parents did were being shut down, and kids were going to work because the kinds of jobs that kids could get were the places that were still open. So you could go work at a fast food place, you could go deliver pizzas, you could go um, work in a grocery store. So we had, you know, teenagers suddenly becoming the family breadwinner and putting their lives and health at risk when their parents either couldn't or in some cases maybe wouldn't, but mostly couldn't anymore. And so this is a big, thorny, messy issue, but I don't think we should be deluded for a second to think that Sarah Huckabee Sanders has the well-being of children in mind when she is loosening work restrictions. She has the well-being of capital in mind, as usual. There's not a bright line between children working and adults working. A couple of years ago, I went to the Mining Museum in Yorkshire in England, and the tour where they actually take you down the mine, and it's set up so as you move through the mine, you also move forward in history. And so at the beginning, there was the earliest mine work where the whole family would go to work, and dad would be digging, and mom would be pulling it on a sledge that was tied around her back and crawling literally through the trench. And the kid was there holding a string that held the door to the little tunnel because you didn't want to open it too much because various poisonous gases and fun things like that could be in there. 
So the whole family would literally be working. And eventually they ended up banning the moms and the kids and changing the structure around a little bit. But, you know, it wasn't like working down a mine became super safe and fun after that. It was just limited as to who was doing the work. So, you know, we we can't end exploitation without ending the capitalist mode of production. There it is, the end of my rant on that subject. But we certainly could and should think very differently about the way we treat children in the society. And I think that all of these issues are related. So as I'm recording this, it is a transgender day of visibility. Visibility, as many people have critiqued, is not enough. The laws that are being introduced to crack down on trans kids are designed to make them not look trans, right? They're not going to be not trans kids if they can't transition socially or physically or anything else. They're just going to be unhappy and unseen, as in so many other ways in our society. We really don't want to see kids, and more importantly, we don't want to hear what they have to say. Perhaps, as our guest suggested, we should maybe start listening to them a little bit more. Thanks to the Economic Hardship Reporting Project for sponsoring this season of Belabored. Thank you also, as always, to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and to our new editor, Casey Stone, and most importantly, to all of you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing all your stories with us. We especially appreciate it, as always, if you can rate us on whatever thing you get your podcasts on. It really does help us find new listeners. And special thanks once again to all of you who have supported us and continue to support us financially over at the Descent website or on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash belabored. Thank you for helping us keep this podcast going. As we noted at the top of the show, we have some special guests for new Patreon supporters to thank you for helping us move into our 10th year of the show. Oh my God. (laughs) If you want to share your story of working or organizing or not working, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a teacher or an auto worker, an adjunct or a taxi driver, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>